0: Life in Appalachia has always been hard. This is especially true in West Virginia, where the mountains tend to isolate people from each other and from the outside world. Even when we were still part of Virginia, we were isolated from the rest of our statesmen, leading to the stereotype of us being a somewhat backwards people. This isolation meant that for many years, our ancestors didn't have access to movies, radio, or oftentimes even books. They played their own music, sang their own songs, and on cold dark nights told their own stories. Much like the tales told by our forefathers, these stories were about love, betrayal, feuds, and family. The stories that we are most concerned with tonight are those of the supernatural. For you see, in West Virginia, There is no shortage of hardship and tragedy, and, as a result, there is no shortage of ghosts. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Loyal Goblins to the Blue Moon edition of the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight we will be going over a few books about the Mountain State Coffin Hollow by Dr. Ruth Ann Music and Witches, Ghosts, and Signs by Dr. Patrick Gaynor. Growing up in West Virginia, every Halloween our class would read stories from Dr. Ruth Ann Music's book, The Telltale Lilac Bush. As a child, the stories were rather mundane and served more as a bit of local pride more than anything else. You see, as a child of the 80s, ghost stories from the turn of the century didn't really hold my attention the same way that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did. What I didn't realize, and really what eight-year-old would realize this, is that these stories weren't written down to specifically entertain the reader but were recorded as a way to preserve our cultural history. Many of these tales were part of oral tradition, told and retold over countless generations, until they were collected by the first folklorist in the state. Without pioneers such as Dr. Music and Dr. Gaynor, these tales would have been completely lost to time. Who were Ruth Ann Music and Patrick Gaynor, though? What drove them to archive local folklore? Ruth Ann Musick was born September 17, 1897, in Missouri. She taught high school in various states while pursuing a bachelor's degree and eventually a master's degree in mathematics, which she earned in 1928. She continued teaching high school until 1938, when she went to the State University of Iowa to pursue a doctorate degree in English. It was here that her interest in folklore began. It wasn't until 1946 that she moved to West Virginia, where she taught at the newly elevated Fairmont State College. She felt the area was an untapped resource for the study of folklore, and, in 1948, the first collegiate-level course on the subject was offered at the school. By 1950, she had revived the West Virginia State Folklore Society, and in 1951 became the founding editor of the journal West Virginia Folklore. She was hailed as an unofficial spokesperson for the West Virginia folklore genre, was a vegetarian since 1903, and a vocal activist against mountaintop removal mining, acid rain, acid mine drainage, and other environmental concerns. She passed away in 1974 from spinal cancer at the age of 77. Her research is now archived at Fairmont State University in the library that has since been renamed in her honor. Patrick Gaynor was born August 25, 1903, in Parkersburg, West Virginia. His father died in 1905, and Patrick was raised by his mother and grandfather. His grandfather used to sing traditional folk songs to him, sparking Patrick's interest in music. In his youth, Patrick had a love for learning and recorded traditional songs from the area, all of which was done with a pencil and paper, since portable recording devices were not yet available. He was accepted into Glenville Normal School, which would later be renamed Fairmont State College, later to be renamed Fairmont State University, where he was an athlete competing in basketball, football, and baseball. He went on to study at West Virginia University, where he received his master's in English in 1928. It was here that he met his future wife, Antoinette Kaczynski, a Polish immigrant. In fact, It is reported that upon his marriage, he learned to speak Polish in self-defense, so he knew what his in-laws were saying about him. He then moved with his family to Missouri to pursue a doctorate, focusing on the study of music and song. At the onset of World War II, he joined the National Catholic Community Service, a branch of the USO, where he served first in Manhattan and later in Brazil. After the war, he returned to West Virginia, taking an assistant professor position at WVU in the English department. One of his contemporaries was quoted as saying, If Gaynor held his class at midnight at the bottom of Cheat Lake, it would still be standing room only. In the late 1940s, he began teaching extension classes at Glenville State College, and his courses presented traditional skills of the Appalachians, such as singing, dancing, cooking, and tool-making essentially what we would call experimental archaeology and living history today. This was how he accidentally founded the West Virginia State Folk Festival. When the festival became commercialized by what Gaynor called drugstore cowboys, he washed his hands of the entire enterprise. He released his book, Folk Songs from the West Virginia Hills, in 1975, and it has since been abridged and re-released by his son and granddaughter under the title of favorite folk songs from the West Virginia Hills. The work that we will be covering in this podcast, though, is Witches, Ghosts, and Signs, Folklore of the Southern Appalachians. Because, frankly, you don't want to hear me sing. Dr. Patrick Gaynor was diagnosed with colon cancer in 1978 and, after several operations, passed away in 1981, also at the age of 77. To say that these two were instrumental in the recording and preservation of West Virginia folklore is beyond understatement. The field literally would not exist if it were not for their work. Since then, there have been many folklorists who graduated from the program and have carried on this legacy. In the modern era, this also includes reports of cryptids and other paranormal activity. The legacy has not just continued, but has grown beyond anything these pioneers could have envisioned. I think if you tried to explain the video game Fallout 76 to them, which takes place entirely within the state of West Virginia, they may not believe you. But, to paraphrase Patrick, believing is much more fun, don't you think? Let's start by taking a look at Dr. Music's book Coffin Hollow. It's not necessarily a storybook, but more of an archival collection of tales that she has recorded directly from those who told them they are arranged in a way that similar stories are grouped together by theme. That means, when you read one story about the woman in white, hitchhiking on a lonely stretch of road late at night, you'll find several variations of that tale. There is a nice addition for folklorists in this book. The appendix has notes on who, when, and where Dr. Music recorded each tale from. This is invaluable for putting the stories into a greater context. Since they are not often told in chronological order. In one story, the woman in white may hop on the back of a horse, while in the next, she could appear in the rearview mirror of your car. To begin, let's hear the namesake of the book, Coffin Hollow. This story was originally told by Charles Shaver in the town of Monongah in 1967. The tale begins during the Civil War in what was later known as the Jones Raid. This raid by Confederate troops aimed to disrupt railroad traffic on the B&O and to quell us rowdy secessionists. Coincidentally, the state of West Virginia was officially formed only a month after this raid took place. While the Confederates were able to inflict a bit of damage, they were repelled, and one of the soldiers was captured. When this soldier was en route to prison, a Yankee captain recognized the man as the one who shot and killed the captain's brother. Enraged, the captain walked up to the prisoner and shot him in the head with his service pistol. His body was buried in the nearby Watson Cemetery. After the war, the captain returned to the area and began to court a woman who lived in Watson. In those days, courting meant that you would ride to the parents' home for a supervised visitation and leave before sundown. His route took him past the very same cemetery where the executed rebel was buried. One night, his courting lasted longer than he anticipated, and he didn't leave before the sun had already begun to set. As he rode past the graveyard in the dark, he saw a bizarre sight. Seated atop a coffin, as if it were a horse, was the man that he had killed. With a rebel yell, the coffin rider dashed forward and began chasing the captain. They rode at breakneck speed until they reached the end of the holler, an area of land between two mountains. When the coffin and rider abruptly vanished. Thinking that he was safe as long as he could outrun the ghost, the captain continued his courting late into the evenings, riding hard past the graveyard each time. One evening, it seems the captain was not fast enough. His remains were found the next day beside the road with a single bullet in his skull. When an examination was done, they found that the bullet had been repurposed from one that had previously been fired. The townsfolk were baffled, until someone suggested that they exhume the body of the rebel. When they did, the man's remains were little more than a skeleton, but there was no bullet within his skull. It wasn't the missing bullet, though, that shook them to the core. Instead, it's what they did find. Clutched within one of his bony hands was a freshly fired pistol. Our next story is a bit more modern, taking place at a time when movie theaters were in use. It was told in 1970 by Thomas Schaffler and was his own childhood experience. It's entitled The Last Lodge of Ravenswood. When Thomas was a senior in high school, he worked at a locally owned movie theater. It was housed on the ground floor of a three-story building, and Thomas worked the night shift, cleaning after everyone else had gone home. One night, as he was tidying up, he witnessed a man with a lantern walking behind the movie screen. He immediately called the police, who came and searched the premises. The police alerted the owner of a possible break-in, and she came to help Thomas lock up, though she did not seem terribly concerned. She, too, had seen the man with the lantern, and she was convinced that it was a ghost. She told him that there had previously been a secret society that rented the second and third floors of the building. The group held meetings on the second floor, and initiations on the third. It was rumored that many initiates fled the initiation process, though none ever spoke about exactly what happened. One night, during one of their initiations, there was a fire. Everyone was able to escape with the exception of the initiate. Despite knowing that the man was in the building during the blaze, no body was ever found so negligence charges were never filed against the lodge. After the blaze, the building was renovated and the movie theater moved into the first floor. Ever since then, the Lantern Man had been seen lurking in the background. Thomas was astounded and wasn't sure whether or not to believe his boss. She seemed adamant enough, but it was such a fantastic tale that it was hard to be sure. The next night, during family dinner, Thomas asked his father about the lodge. His father affirmed that there was indeed a lodge and that the building did burn in an initiation. It was only then that Thomas recounted the rest of his tale. When he finished, his father was quiet for a moment. He finally admitted that he not only believed Thomas, but also his boss, because the man killed in the blaze was none other than the theater owner's husband. The last tale that I will relay is a bit shorter, and I'm truncating it a bit because I find that in this instance, brevity is the source of wit. Originally told by Sheila Ireland in 1965, I give you The Restless Soul. Between the time of the Civil War and modern conveyances, teamsters were known to travel the mountain roads, transporting goods from one area to another. This story takes place as one man was returning from such a trip, his wagon empty. Night was falling, and he knew that he was nowhere near a town, so he stopped at a farmhouse seeking shelter. The home's owner said that they were quite limited on space, but his late brother's home was vacant. It was widely rumored to be haunted since his passing, but if the teamster could brave the night, he was welcome to stay there. The teamster was more tired than he was scared, so he rode to the home and went inside, quickly falling into bed. He slept quite soundly until around midnight, when he heard shuffling, as if someone were preparing for sleep. He then felt the cover shift as someone crawled into bed beside him. The figure continued to shuffle around restlessly, until finally the teamster, without rolling over, said, If you're going to sleep beside me, you're going to have to lie still. In reply, he heard these words. I've been dead five years, and I come back every night. But you are the first person to speak to me. With a heavy sigh, the teamster replied, Well, what is it you want? When I died, I owed the neighbor fifteen dollars. If you promise to tell my brother to pay the man, I'll leave and never come back. Frustrated, the teamster answered, I'll pay him myself if you would just let me sleep. The next day, the neighbor was $15 richer, and the ghost was never seen again. Our next book is entitled Witches, Ghosts, and Signs, Folklore of the Southern Appalachians. It was collected throughout Dr. Gaynor's travels and was first published in 1975, later reprinted in 2008 with the assistance of Dr. Judy Byers, founding director of the Folklife Center at Fairmont State University. This book is considerably more expansive than Coffin Hollow, as its title would suggest. The first chapter is called Speech of the Mountaineer and is a language study of the Appalachians, Not only is it a dictionary of unique words and phrases, but it also delves into the dialects, accents, and speech patterns of the people. Chapter 2 looks at traditional gatherings and activities that brought people together. These were often centered around agricultural pursuits, but also a few religious or social events as well. Chapter 3 deals primarily with ghosts, and since they largely echo the tales that I just told, I'm going to skip this chapter. The next few chapters are pretty interesting, especially if you're curious about the practice of conjure. It includes folk cures, nature lore, rules for farming, and superstitions. I picked out a few unique ones. We've all heard that a four leaf clover is lucky, but did you know that finding a five leaf clover is unlucky? How do you cure the bad luck? Simple give the clover to someone else. If gifted, it becomes good luck and eliminates the bad luck from the person who had found it. The next one makes perfect sense to me. Let me know what you think. It is said that if you eat fish and drink milk at the same time, you'll poison yourself. I don't know about anyone else, but I get queasy just thinking about this combination. Most of us have heard the superstition that it's bad luck for a black cat to cross your path. But did you know that it's good luck if a rabbit crosses your path? There doesn't seem to be much explanation behind this one, but if we could find a child who was born on Christmas Day, they could ask the rabbit, since according to legend, anyone born on December 25th can speak to the beasts. It is said that if your right palm itches, you're going to receive money, but if your left palm itches, you will shake hands with a stranger by the end of the day. To me, this seems a little bit backwards, since you typically shake hands using your right hand. If you burn lightning-struck wood in your fireplace, your house will be more likely to be struck by lightning. This one could have a little truth to it, I know that a tree that has been struck by lightning is more likely to be struck a subsequent time, so there may be a little bit of synergy here. The same can be said for people as well. While your chances are pretty low to begin with, if struck, you are more likely to be struck by lightning again. According to legend, some people are just born with abilities. There are several events that could cause this. The first is if the child is born with a call over its head. A child born like this is said to have the gift of prophecy. If a child is born posthumously, which seems to be an older variation of the word to mean that the child's father has died before their birth, they can have the gift of prophecy as well as the ability to cure certain ails though legend seems to be rather vague about the specifics of which ails they can cure. There is also the much older European tradition that persisted in the Appalachians. That is, that the seventh son of a seventh son will be born with abilities. This is another instance where they are simply described as being potentially magical without really any specifics, though from other lore I've read, the gift can manifest in many ways. The last bit of folklore will lead us into the next section. If you think you are being targeted by a witch at night, sleep atop mustard seed. It isn't specified whether or not you have to lie directly on the seeds, or if you can place it under your mattress. I feel like sleeping on them directly would cause a bit of insomnia, so it's almost a case where you have to question whether the cure is worse than the cause. As you may have guessed, our next segment is on witches. I have to say, Appalachian witches are some of the most unique variations that I've read about. So, what exactly are witches in the West Virginia context, and how does a person become one? First, according to West Virginia folklore, following the Civil War and into the first half of the 20th century, a witch was a person who sold their soul to the devil in exchange for unspecified powers. The trick was getting the devil to appear so that you could make the bargain, and, I have to say, this is probably the most West Virginia thing that I have ever heard. There are several variations to this process, though I'm going to list the themes that seem to occur the most. Timing is important for this. It always seems to take place during the three days of the full moon. At this time, a person must find a secluded area. This could be a mountaintop, a rock outcropping, or a clearing in the woods. This area can vary, but the seclusion is the most important part. Next, you must take your rifle and fire it into the air at the moon while, quote, cursing the divinity. You do this three times each night, for a total of nine shots and nine curses. Upon reciting the final curse, the devil is said to appear carrying his book of names and an iron pen, which you will use to stab yourself in the forearm and draw blood, with which you will sign your name in his book. Yes, you heard that correctly. You become an Appalachian witch by shooting the moon and cursing God. At least according to legend. Now that the devil has your soul on contract, what do you get in return? Some witches were clearly better negotiators than others. Some got vague powers that really didn't amount to much more than ways to make their lives a bit more convenient, while others received far more malicious abilities. The most mundane ability seems to be the jinx or evil eye. Basically, the witch could focus her malice upon an individual and cause misfortune to be drawn to that individual. Its effect is more cumulative than singular, slowly wearing down the victim over time. That means that the target has time to work some magic of their own to counteract the curse. Some witches were reported to make inanimate objects move or dance on their own. Making a table dance around the room is a bit of harmless fun but making a pitchfork or butcher knife do the same thing, and suddenly this ability becomes a bit more lethal. Shapeshifting is attributed to a handful of Appalachian witches. Oftentimes this took the form of a black cat, though there are accounts of witchy raccoons and even a white deer. These stories usually result in the animal being injured in some way and the witch later exhibiting the same wound after changing back to human form. This is very similar to werewolf accounts in the Old World, specifically the stories where a wolf has its paw cut off and the protagonist later finds that his wife has had her hand severed in the night while he was out hunting the beast. Another aspect of the shapeshifting ability is being able to distort size and shape. Several times witches are said to have entered a locked home by squeezing through the keyhole of the door. In one story, the witch first becomes a black cat, and then squeezes through the keyhole before attempting to choke their victim to death. Although, this was done while in cat form, so I imagine this attempted murder was not well conceived. Cats are not very strong, nor do they have thumbs, so strangling someone would prove a little problematic. Milk theft is also a common theme. Like shape-shifting, this is a piece of lore that extends back to the Middle Ages. Without the cultural context, it seems pretty mundane, but this book explains why this is so insidious. The people of Appalachia are largely poor by monetary standards. For a long time, trade was a means to gain material wealth. A family that was fortunate enough to have a cow was lucky enough to have a means of nourishment and a way to make a little extra money. Excess milk would be used to churn butter, which could be sold or traded at their local general store. For many, this was a primary source of income on their farm, so when a witch causes your cow to stop producing, or magically steals the milk, it places a severe financial burden on the family. So how does a witch magically steal milk? Ultimately, the use of an enchanted cloth rag to simulate an udder. The enchanting process can sometimes be quite simple, though details are still rather sparse. The most common way this was done was by draping the cloth over an object so that one corner hung down. Some accounts say that the cloth was thrown over blackberry bushes. Some say over the corner of a chair back. Others require the witch to drive a knife or hatchet into the wall of their home and hang the cloth from the handle. Wherever the cloth hung, the witch was able to draw milk from it as if they were milking the cow themselves. If the witch was being a bit less larcenous, they would simply curse the cow so that the milk would not form butter during the churning process. This seems to have been both more common and far easier for the witch to perform. It was something they would often just speak into existence or, on occasion, inflict with the evil eye. Now that you've upset a witch, what do you do? You could sleep on mustard seed as suggested earlier, but that seems to be more of a short-term solution. Your best defense isn't with the church, as you might suspect, but with a witch doctor. You may have heard this term before, and due to popular media, you may suspect that a witch doctor is more like a traditional tribal medicine man, using amulets, incantations, and trance to remove evil spirits. The Appalachian Witch Doctor is quite simply a doctor that specializes in breaking curses. They are a doctor against witches. This is what we think of when we hear the term Conjure Doctor or Root Worker today. They use their knowledge of the arcane to counter and break enchantments and illnesses placed upon their clients. Yes, clients. These people were treated with the same respect and reverence that was due a medical doctor as well as the same vague unease and wariness. Like a medical doctor, the techniques used were mysterious to the average Appalachian, so there was an air of mystery behind it. Witch doctors also seemed to utilize a combination of both curative and preventative medicine. When they broke a curse, they often did things back to the witch, preventing her from making another attempt on their victim. In one example, a cow had been cursed so that its milk would not churn into butter. After several days of this, the witch doctor was called. He brought nine birch switches with him and asked to be given a butter churn filled with fresh milk. This was a small lap churn, and he sat on the front porch of the victim's house and began to churn with his left hand. He then used the birch rods to whip the butter churn. As he whipped it, He tossed the switch aside and took up another, until all nine of them were used. By the time he was done, the milk was starting to form butter. He then burned the switches and warned the milkmaid that the witch would soon visit in an attempt to borrow something. It seems that by borrowing items, the witch would be able to re-establish the curse. The very next day, the witch knocked on the door, looking to borrow something. It was then that the milkmaid noticed that the witch's arms were covered in long welts, as if she had been beaten with a switch. These two authors have provided an invaluable resource to West Virginians and the study of local folklore in general. Dr. Music collected stories and helped preserve them in a way that we can see the context of the story and the time in which it was told. It reveals how oral tradition is becoming less common, especially with the time periods in which the stories take place. There are a few tales that take place in the modern era, but many more that took place in the 1800s. Even the modern tales have themes that evolved from an older folktale tradition, such as the headless horseman or the woman in white, who evolved from riding behind a person on their horse to riding in the passenger seat of their car. Dr. Gaynor's work captures a whole-picture snapshot of a period of Appalachian history. It's a time of transition in both the state and the country as a whole. Like Dr. Music's stories, we are able to see different time periods and how they have grown and evolved. That said, these books are fairly academic. They record cultural traditions and stories for posterity. While most people can pick out their favorite stories for telling on dark nights, they are not the easiest books to read cover-to-cover. Cover. Many stories have similar structure and themes, and at times can feel repetitive. But, for someone interested in folklore and Appalachian culture, these books prove to be invaluable resources. The information they recorded would otherwise have been lost to time, so we owe these folklore pioneers a debt of gratitude. I'm not sure if the tradition continues in West Virginia schools today. But at least once a year, students should get to experience our cultural tradition of the ghost story. As always, links to the books are posted in the show notes below. If you like Esoteric Book Club, please like, share, and review. Esoteric Book Club is now on Patreon. If you'd like to help contribute, please leave a donation. I will be setting up rewards and such in the future, as well as polls for which books to review. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band, Hello June. Their music can be found at bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay weird.